Okay, well, the last uh, couple weeks I did, I did uh, so a couple messages on the difference between having a provision-based relationship with the Lord and having a purpose-based relationship with the Lord. And I'm kind of going to leave that, leave that alone this morning and move on with our, uh, with our study of the book of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. You can turn there if you want to, if you have your Bibles. If not, I'm, just, I'm going to be reading whatever verses I'm quoting today, as I always do. So, um, so just to kind of refresh your memory, bring you back into Ephesians, we spent um, three weeks, I think, three weeks uh, in Ephesians 4, 8, 9, 10, a little bit in 10, um, talking about Paul taking or Paul quoting psalms about uh, the Lord taking captivity captive and ascending ascending on high. And if you remember, Paul borrows from Psalm 68, demonstrates that the judgment and captivity and restoration of Old Covenant Israel speaks directly of the death, burial, and resurrection of a people who Christ takes captive in himself. It's, it is, it's Christ that takes the people into judgment, into the judgment of God in his flesh. It is Christ who leads those people in himself out from the grave onto the highway of holiness towards Zion, the city of God. And, and, and I, well, I'm not going to go back in and explain any of that, but, um, but that, that is kind of the background for what I really want to focus in on today. And that's Ephesians 4.10. I'm just going to spend today on just this one verse. It says, He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And I want to, I want to spend most of our time this morning talking about the filling where it says he might fill all things. I want to look at that filling of all things. Uh, but before I even get into that, I just... just um, mostly for the sake of thoroughness, want to say a little bit of just about the ascending and descending language that he uses here. And scripture uses the, the, uh, the terms ascend and descend having to do with Christ, or when it, or when it uses the terms uh, above and below, above and below. A lot of times you'll hear that in, in uh, John the Baptist talks about that, Jesus, I am from above, you are from below. Don't don't think about up and down. Don't think about near and far. Don't even think about locations at all. It's it's the same thing with heaven and earth. The distance between heaven and earth is the difference between Adam and Christ. The distance between above and below is the otherness between the living and the dead. It's not about two different places. It's about two different kinds. It's about two different lives. It's about two different creations. That which is below is that which is of the old, the first, the dead, the dark. That which is of the new is the is the. I mean, above is the new. It's the second. It's the living. It's the light. So when Christ when Christ is said to have descended to earth, or as it says in John chapter six. When the Son of Man came down from heaven, he didn't have to move from one place to another place. 
he only had to be born of another kind. He descended into the earth not by flying down in the clouds or flying down in a spaceship. He descended into the earth by coming out of the womb of an Adamic woman. That's how he descended. And we all know that story. He was born as a man. He was submitted to the law in order that he could put both away, the old man and the old covenant. And that's how Jesus came down. And therefore, when, when we are risen with Christ, as Scripture tells us we are in, 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 in uh, countless places in the New Testament, or we're, we're, we're brought with him into the ascension that, that uh, we just read about here in, in, in Ephesians 4, 8, 8 and 9, you can't, don't picture yourself floating up into space. Your body doesn't have to leave the earth for your soul to ascend into the heavens. Your outward shell actually has nothing to, nothing to do with whether or not your soul has risen and dwells above in Christ in the heavens. Remember, we spent some time in Ephesians chapter 2 with Christ saying, you have been raised up, made alive, raised up, seated in Christ in the heavens. It starts off the, the, uh, the book with several references to that. But, but that doesn't have to do with your body leaving... It's, it's not about flesh leaving a planet. It doesn't have anything to do with you being two places at one time. It has everything to do with your soul breaking out of one kind and realm and being translated into another. And your flesh is really inconsequential to that whole thing. It, it, it you know, it's pretty much stays put until it gets put underground. And then it stays put then too. So, uh... What I'm trying to say is that above and below has to do with the dwelling place of the soul. It has to do with where your soul is found. In the heavens, or is it strictly still, as all unbelievers, completely, of the earth? And it doesn't have to do, those terms don't have to do with the dwelling place of your body. Bodies don't go above. Paul says in Colossians 1.13, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us or conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And he was writing that to people who were alive in the flesh and yet had been fully translated and conveyed into a completely different man. So Christ descending into the earth and our ascension with Him has to do with what T. Austin Sparks calls the distance of difference. The distance is the difference. The journey isn't about space travel or time travel or, or dimension passage, you know, through dimensions. The, all those things are natural. All those things were part of God's creation. They're all part of the first. They're all natural. The journey is out of one man and into another, out of one life and into another. And that's why all the types and shadows in the Old Testament of this journey read the, the way that they do. For Abraham, the journey was a journey of faith. And when I say faith, I mean growing in the mind of the Lord. I don't, believe, I don't mean it was him coming to believe something. I mean it was a spirit-given view, a spirit-given comprehension, awareness that was working in his soul. And it wasn't about getting from point A and then point B and then point C and then point D and finally... One day he arrived at, at point Z. It was not that. It was a journey that involved two things and two things only. Abraham's journey involved the perpetual leaving behind of what was formerly his 
and the perpetual revealing of an inheritance that God had given to him. That was his journey, those two things. Leaving behind what God had put behind and apprehending by faith what God had laid before him as an inheritance. It's really important that we understand that. That is exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 3. He says, Brethren, I do not count myself as having apprehended, and if you look that up in the Greek, that's the same word as comprehended. But one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. Now, I know I've mentioned this before, but I'll just say it again in case people weren't here or sleeping. The word behind, when he says, forgetting those things which are behind, the word behind is is a word that does not have reference to time. It's not forgetting the things that happened yesterday or last year or forgetting how I used to act or forgetting what I used to do. do. It's, It's not what it's talking about. The word behind has to do literally with what's behind, behind the back, what's behind you. And that was that was Abraham's journey, forgetting what was behind. That was his journey in type and shadow. It's our, our journey in spirit and truth. We progressively forget what God has put away by the cross. What God has put to death is washed from our soul by the laver. You know, the laver in the tabernacle. First there's the death, then there's the washing, and then this is how it works in your soul. And, and we reach to lay hold of what is ahead. And again, the word ahead is not a word that denotes time. It's not reaching for what is ahead next month or next year or when your body dies. Or it's not reaching towards that special day. It's, it's reaching to lay hold of what is directly in front of you. What is in your presence. In fact, the word literally is translated in, sight, in the sight of or in the presence of. That's what we're laying hold of. The point is that you are already in the presence of what you are apprehending. Just as Abraham was already in the land when God said in Genesis 13, 14, and the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, which is very significant because there's another thing he's leaving behind. After Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward, and westward. For all the land which you see, I give to you and your descendants forever, in your seed forever. And that's, there's a whole lot there that we can get into, but I trust the the Lord will fill in the blanks without me saying much more about that. Except just to say that what we're seeing is a salvation where we already are and we're forgetting the things that have been crucified to us. And I said all of that because, because we misunderstand the journey that we're on. We misunderstand below and above. Christ descended by being found in the form of a man. We ascend by being found in another man. Paul says in Philippians 3, Oh, to be found in him. The man who raised us up with him, seated us in him, in the heavens, in Christ Jesus. So the words above and below, heaven and earth, are used to speak of an incredible distance between two kinds, between two creations. 
but that distance isn't measured in miles, it isn't measured in dimensions, the distance is measured in difference, otherness. So scriptures are going to say things, you, you've read these things many times, you have been raised together with Christ, or since you have been raised with him, fix your, fix your mind on things above. Well, you can take your eyes off the clouds when you pray, that's not what that verse means, fix your eyes on things above. The things above are not a different location in the natural realm. I mean, you might as well look down as look up. It doesn't really matter. It's not in either direction. It's in another man. Can you hear what I mean? It's in another kind, another life altogether. And you fix your mind on the things above as those things are revealed by and in and as the Lord Jesus Christ. You fix your mind where you... Where you are, where you have been brought only as He shows you where you are. I'm talking about the Spirit of Truth working in your soul, the reality of being in Him. I am in you, Jesus says. I am in the Father. Oh, wait, how does it go? I am in the Father, you are in me, and I am in you. So, in this verse, Jesus has said, to descend so that he might ascend and fill all things. Now here's the question that I want to really spend time on to get to. What are the all things that he is filling? Um, there's actually two ways that I, uh, I think that you could read this that are right. They're both, I think, valid because they're both clearly uh, spoken of in several places in the New Testament. The, the, the issue here is really what which one does Paul have in mind when he wrote this? Um, but since they're both true, I thought I'd just mention something briefly about the first one and then spend most of our time on the second, which is what I think he's talking about. But the first sense, the first sense in which Christ fills all things is really the topic uh, of the entire book of Hebrews. It's also uh, the topic of several other large chunks of the New Testament and it's the reality how, of how Christ in the, in the New Testament becomes the substance and realization of, of all of the many things that were testified to in the Old Covenant. Uh, there's a statement, I was having coffee with Carolyn this week, and she reminded me of this, of this statement. Uh, how, do you, how do you eat an elephant? Does anyone know the answer to that? One bite at a time, right. Well, that's kind of how God showed Christ... Uh, to the earth in the Old Covenant, one bite at a time. There was so much that he saw and comprehended and related to in his Son. So much that was there. So much involved in his eternal plan and purpose. You know, in one sense, it's as simple as Christ all and in all, but it's also as big as Christ himself. And the same way you couldn't just put an elephant on your plate and say, eat this, God couldn't put his son on display and say, understand this. To eat an elephant, you'd have to consume it in small and varied, disgusting bite-sized pieces and, and take away the disgusting part, and that's something of how God feeds us the understanding of Christ. What was one in his heart and mind before the foundation of the world, God, God diced up into thousands of individual testimonies. I mean, never really chopping him up, but, 
but presenting him in thousands of individual testimonies. Not many testimonies of many things. Many testifying of the one. And there was so much to say and to show about this enormous elephant, if you will. So many aspects and realities, so much wisdom and power and purpose that God displayed his son in the natural realm through an incredible variety of pictures and shadows and figures. Jesus comes and says, all of this spoke of me. And we don't understand how all of it spoke of him because we have made all of it speak of many things. And yet all of it speaks of him. He says that in Luke 24, uh, John 5, uh, it's several places. But the many things that came out of God's view of that one son ultimately were gathered up again into that one son. And this one son was, was judgment, was life, was justification, was redemption, was priesthood, was kingdom, judge, dwelling place, sacrifice, offering, sweet-smelling incense unto his father, and so much, so much more. But each of these things were, were kind of divided up by God and became individual and separate ordinances of the old covenant. The priest, the prophet, the judge, the king. They were all different people, though they all came out from one. The sacrifice, you know, the incense, the offering, the showbread, those were all different figures. The fire, the cloud, the light, the water. All of those were different things, different pictures of one God. But in the resurrection, all of these things, all of these pictures were filled up with their substance. They were gathered up, the fragments were gathered up and brought into the one that they all spoke of. They were gathered back into him. The concepts, you could say, were filled up with a person. I... Um, I uh, well, in the Hebrews uh, group that we do on Saturday mornings, we spent we spent several weeks, I think, talking about Melchizedek because uh, because Melchizedek is a, is a guy. I mean, he appears on the scene for like three verses in Genesis, and then you don't hear anything about him. I mean, there's a quick mention of him in the Psalms, and then he appears in Hebrews. Uh, Chapters, I think six and seven, maybe it's five and six, where where the author of Hebrews says, "You know what? I'd re- this is my paraphrase. I'd really like to talk to you about about Melchizedek, because there's so much there, but it's hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. By now, you should be teachers, and you're you know needing milk." And he goes on to say, "But but what he does go on to explain in Hebrews is is that and, and, and this this may be." Hard to follow, but just it's, it summarizes kind of what I'm trying to say about this view of gathering things up. Here's Melchizedek, as you can tell, and um, and in this in this man, uh, there he is the king of Jerusalem, Zion. He's he's a he's a king, he's a priest, he is. Uh, Typical of eternal, he is without father and mother, without genealogy, end of days, the Hebrew writer says, which speaks of one who is uh, eternal. He is, uh, he is the king, it says his name means king of righteousness. He is the king of peace, the city of Salem that he is king of, which is Jerusalem, is uh, the king of peace. So there's righteousness, peace. He, Abraham tithes to him a tenth of all that he has, and he offers 
Abraham bread and wine, which is so obviously indicative of the New Covenant. But all of these things are indicative of the New Covenant. And in this one man, you see something in this one guy of, of so much of God's eternal purpose. And yet, you couldn't really look at Melchizedek and, and really understand much about what God was trying to do. So it's kind of like God divided up All of Israel was in Abraham's loins when he met Melchizedek. And then in the, in the centuries to follow, God divided up everything that was shown, and these many facets that were in this one man. You know, here he brought a, a kingdom. Now, he, this was the king, and, and, and so he demonstrates his kingdom through David, who is the one who brings the judgment, and Solomon primarily, and then... Uh, priesthood and then there's uh, you know the righteousness he was king of righteousness I'm not going to write all this out but that's through the law and what else did I have in this little diagram here oh obviously the the, uh, the wine and the blood I mean or the, the wine is the blood and the, 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 the bread is the flesh and so you have the the, uh, the body and the bread I mean how do you have blood and body I had something else on here too, I think, but it doesn't really matter. The point is, all of these things were one in the heart of God. Then they all came out, and God spent centuries declaring the reality that he saw from the beginning, only to gather them all back up and make them spiritual reality and substance in Christ. And now, in Romans, you know, you can go through each one of these things. You know, we... We eat his flesh and drink his blood and are partakers of him. Uh, Romans 8, 4, the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us who no longer walk by the flesh but by the spirit. You know, we have this great, Hebrews, we have such a high priest who has brought us behind the veil. You know, we dwell with him in the heavens. The king, the kingdom of God is not an outward signs to be observed. The kingdom of God is within you. And here this one who is Christ reigns in the soul. I mean, you, peace. Oh, yeah, you want peace. Okay, here's peace. Uh, the peace uh, was shown to be in the, king of, in the kingdom of Solomon, where God put, there was no more enemies in that land, a picture of a fully, uh, a, a fully conquered, you know, Canaan, Canaan was, was where the seed of Abraham under the kingship of David brought death to all uncircumcision. Now that works in your soul, you see? Now that works in you. The kingdom of God is within you. And all that is flesh, all that is uncircumcision is being put to death so that there is peace. Peace with who? Peace with the king. And peace with one another because flesh is the only thing that brings enmity with both God and one another. And so you have Ephesians chapter 2, which says, He put to death the enmity, slaying it in the body of Christ, thus establishing peace, one new man reconciled to God. So peace, too, is also gathered up into this one man. And you can... You can do any word, any uh, anyone you want. I mean, any everything of the Old Testament, Old Covenant, is something of this that, that he has gathered up into the one. And Melchizedek is just part of, oh, I think, one of the ways that, that, that at least the Hebrew author, the, the, the writer of the book of Hebrews says, God had this thing all figured out long before he divided it up and showed it in much greater detail. But he did that only to gather it up into, into Christ.
So um, that's that diagram. Um, so oftentimes in the New Testament, you will find this phrase, all things. And many times the all things in, in, uh, uh, in the New Testament speaks of the all things that uh, spoke of him. Uh, that, you know, you see that all things might be fulfilled. Jesus says, I did this so that all things of the scripture might be fulfilled or whatever. Those, here are the all things. And he is the reality that fills them. So uh, that's one sense, and, and a very true sense. Uh, whether or not it's Paul's specific purpose in this verse in Ephesians 4, um, I, I don't know for sure, and I kind of actually think he would more lean towards another, or I, he would probably say it's a, this second one that I'm about to do. But certainly, whether or not he's talking about that here, he talks about it several other places. And like I said, the entire book of Hebrews is going from one of these to the other to the other to the other to the other all the way down from Sinai to Zion. I mean, it's everything being summed up and we have, we have the greater salvation. Do not trample underfoot the greater deal. You know, that's the whole book of Hebrews. But the second way that uh, that verse could be taken in, in the way that I think it was probably intended only because of the context of, of this particular verse is that he fills all things in us. That we are the, the all things that he is filling. And, and the reason I lean towards that is uh, because he's talking about the body here, he's been describing the body growing up into the unity of faith, the full measure of Christ. He's just about to describe how that filling gives some to be apostles and prophets and teachers and evangelists and pastors. And we'll get to that. Uh, we'll get to those roles uh, probably next time, but just to say before, I'll just say at least that, that, that those five offices are, are just five different uh, watering cans through out from which his fullness flows, or they're nothing at all. And the purpose of them is for the watering of the seed, the increase of Christ, the full stature, the full measure of the stature of Christ. But I want to kind of just pause... Uh, and, and just think of what it means for Christ to fill us. That's very familiar language, especially here probably. Um, we use that sort of terminology frequently. The idea of Jesus filling our heart or being filled with the Spirit or Christ being formed in us. That, those are things that uh, are, are pretty common uh, in, in both in our church and, and, and elsewhere. But I want to ask you, what does it actually mean to be filled with him? In a word, if I had to try to put it into words in a brief kind of summary, and words will fail in this, uh, but, but I'll do my best here. It has to do with truth as a person, light as a person, filling your soul so that in every way you are brought into line with and become expressive of that truth. 
has to do with the living word of God permeating and saturating your soul so that in, in all things you bear that word's image and imprint and reality so much so that we grow to say with Paul, for me to live is Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. But the one who is the fullness and reality and the substance of my soul has his expression in all things. It has to do with your thoughts and your nature and your perspective being constantly displaced, not adjusted, removed, replaced with the light who is the life of your soul. I've been thinking about this verse uh, ever, ever since I became aware of, of the meaning of one of the words in it. I've been thinking about this verse in John 16 where Jesus says, I have many, this is John 16, 12, I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Then he says, however, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. But I want to focus on that first part for a minute. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. If you're like me, you've probably read that and thought that he meant the disciples couldn't handle anymore. Or maybe you thought that it meant that they couldn't understand anything else right now. But that's actually not what that Greek word translated bear means. It doesn't mean handle. It doesn't mean understand. It actually means bear. It, it means bear in the sense that they could not bear in themselves, carry, put on, walk in the things that Jesus desired to speak to them. See, the problem was, try to hear what I'm saying. I know this, this, is, um, this, this could be easily misunderstood. The problem wasn't just that they couldn't understand. I'm sure that was also true, but they hadn't understood anything he said up until that point. The reason Jesus said this, and, and this statement, was because they could not bear in themselves, carry in their soul, put on the reality of the things he wanted very much to share with them. And so he remains silent and promises that the spirit of truth would, would come and, in fact, do that very thing. But I want you to see something in this. I want you to see something that I think is extremely important. I want you to understand that God's communication with you and revelation to you is according to what you can bear. And like Jesus, I don't mean it's according to what you can understand or handle hearing. I suppose that's also true. But, but I mean that he is going to show you only what you can bear in yourself, what you can put on, what you can take of him in exchange for something of you. And there's no other reason for him to tell you anything. I hope you can hear the distinction here. God does not communicate with you in order to teach you things. Every natural mind assumes that he does, and every natural mind is wrong. In fact, God doesn't even very often answer our questions. Have you ever noticed that? 
Some of you have a question you've been waiting on God to answer for years. You're probably going to keep waiting. Because God rarely answers questions, at least not with information. He doesn't answer questions with information. And I know, well, I'm not going to qualify that. We, we've said this before, but part of the reason for that is, is because often our questions are born out of darkness and they have no answer that truth can even address. They have no answer that truth can communicate. That's why Jesus doesn't usually answer questions to the people when he was walking around in the flesh. He usually gets a question and seems to be talking about something completely different in his answer. Or he tells a parable. Or it sounds like maybe he misunderstood the question. But see, that's because truth destroys most of our questions instead of answering them. Because there's nothing... There's not enough that's actually real about our questions to begin with. There are questions in our hearts only because there's darkness in our hearts where the question appears to have relevance. You know, Kaya, uh, Micaiah, my three-year-old son, asks me a lot of questions that don't have answers. And they don't have answers because the questions themselves are expressions of ignorance. And that's okay when you're three. The questions don't make any sense, you know, or they come out of a totally wrong way of thinking. And sometimes the best thing I know to do with his questions is just try to change the subject and get him thinking about something else, you know. Hey, look, SpongeBob, you know. <laughs> That's the best thing I can do with those questions. But more often, I believe that God doesn't answer our questions a lot of times because it would accomplish absolutely nothing if he did. Think about this with me. Let's say that I want God to answer a question that I have about Calvinism versus Arminianism. What would it actually accomplish if he did? Let's just imagine for a minute that one of those man-made theological boxes were actually more right than the other. What would it accomplish if God told you which one was more correct? What did that do for you? What did that do for God? Somebody says, well, now I can teach it correctly. Okay, to what end? Or maybe you want to know, what, you know why it is your great uncle died of a heart attack. Or maybe you want to know what the ten-horned beast stands for in the book of Revelation. See, we actually think there is value in knowing correct information. We think it's valuable simply because it's true, but that is wrong. It's valuable to you and to God only to the extent that you can bear the truth in your soul. And God does not teach your soul for any other reason except that you bear in yourself, carry in your soul, be conformed to the image of Whatever of Christ he is trying to communicate to you. That's why he teaches. And that's why he doesn't teach. His communication with man is in order that they bear in themselves his living word. He desires only that they receive and live and bring forth the increase of what he has given, and almost all of his parables speak to that end. 
He speaks his word into different kinds of soil. And he's not pleased when the soil does not bring forth the increase and bear in itself the fruit of what was sown. His desire isn't that the word is believed by the soil. The desire is that the soil bring forth the increase of the word of the kingdom. Other parables he gives talents, uh, money. You know, talent is a weight of money, money. Uh, to different, three different people. One of them received the money with joy and hid it and kept it. He was very, in the, in the parable, irritated or displeased that this person received and kept what was given to him. Why? Because he was a man that reaped more than he sowed. He was a man who gathered where he did not scatter. And he wanted the increase of what he gave. Well, both speak of the increase of this word received in the soul. It speaks of bearing in yourself that word, that truth, that light, that sun. And putting on and carrying the reality of what, what was sown, what was said, what was communicated, what was given. Anything else that we do with truth other than that, serves to exalt ourselves. Anything else that we do with true words nullifies the cross of Jesus Christ. I know you've read 1 Corinthians 1.17. It's an incredibly intense thing that Paul says here. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect lest the cross of Christ should be nullified. Have you ever stopped to think about what that verse is talking about, what that verse is really telling us? Paul is telling us that if the gospel of Jesus Christ is relegated to mere true words, to learning true words, wise words, right understanding, right doctrine, if the gospel is anything less than the bearing in yourself of the living word, and the experiencing of his death, and the experiencing of his resurrection, then we have nullified that word. We have made it of no effect. Because it is supposed to have the effect in you that it had in him. Putting to death one whole man, one whole kind, one whole creation. And working in you the one who is the resurrection and the life. How do you nullify the Word of God? It's the easiest thing in the world. You do it without even thinking. All it takes is to think that receiving words is the same as bearing the Word. All it takes is to think that loving true teaching is the same thing as living the truth. We as the body of Christ are so used to a nullified gospel, a non-effectual gospel. We don't even know the difference most of the time. We don't even know how the gospel is supposed to be effectual. We're running around trying to make it effectual everywhere other than the place that he reigns and seeks to have increase. We're so accustomed to the powerlessness of true words that we don't even realize that the gospel 
of the cross is the literal power of God to work resurrection life in the soul of man. 1 Corinthians 1.18 For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But in order for this to happen, the word of the cross needs to find room in your soul. Needs to find room in your soul. Not words about the cross. I'm talking about the hearing of the word. The hearing of faith, Paul mentions in Galatians 3 or Romans 10. The word that actually seeks place in your heart. Jesus says in John 8, verse 37, I know you guys are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. We're talking about Christ filling us. In order for Christ to fill you with himself, there must be not just a desire to know true things, but a desire to bear in yourself the decrease that the truth demands. God will only show you what you can carry. God will reveal his word when he finds a place that gives him room. You have to understand, and this I know this rubs us the wrong way and it maybe contradicts some things we've thought or heard, but I don't... But to make apology for, for saying this is to, is to put us on the wrong path that leads to ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth. So you have to understand that God is not really trying to convince you of something. That's not why he teaches you. He's trying to turn you into something. He's not trying to educate you. He's trying to transform you. True Christian education is the learning of Christ himself as the life of the soul and the bearing of his death and the partaking of his resurrection. And every other kind of Christian education must, must either have that as its goal or it's just learning words. Words. So God speaks and he shows and he reveals only where there is truth I mean, I'm sorry, only where there's room for truth to remain in you. That's how it works. You read through the, through the Gospels and watch Jesus and how he looks for that room and, and souls just to speak something that could actually abide there and where he quickly turns and walks away from where it is obviously not present, that, that room, and says, leave them alone. They are the blind leading the blind. Leave them alone. Don't, don't, I'm not going to give pearls to swine. They don't want them, and they're just going to be mad about it. They're going to trample them underfoot and turn on you. And then there's hearts like some of the disciples and like Paul who say, this, this one thing I want. I want to know him, but I want to know him in a very specific way. I want to know, Paul says, Philippians 3, I want to know him being conformed to his death and attaining to his resurrection. 
Well, that's how truth finds room in you. He speaks where truth can fill up an area of your soul where room has been made, where flesh has been exposed and turned from in your heart and hated. Or you've hated it. You've come to hate what fills your soul in order to have room for something else. This is what Jesus means when he says that unless a man hate his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Because his words and his truth are always, they're always available. They're always seeking to find room in us. It is never, ever, don't ever think that God is waiting on time. He's waiting on room. Christ will be heard and not perceived, seen and not known, until there is room in us to know him. How often did Jesus say? I mean, probably after everything he said, I think. He said something like, let him who has an ear hear. You, know, you, you, you are like people who have eyes but cannot see. You have ears and you cannot hear. It's like that picture, that picture analogy I gave last week. You know, I, I come to you with a pitcher full of rocks, you know, big golf ball-sized rocks, and I ask you to fill, her, fill up my pitcher with water, and you grab the hose, and you put the hose right over the pitcher, and it, and it doesn't take long until the water is just pouring out over the sides of the pitcher. And, and you could hold that hose there for 40 years, and I could sit there and blame you for not filling it up more for 40 years or 60 years, or 40 days, it doesn't matter. I can blame you for not filling me because as far as I was concerned, I had my pitcher in the right place, right in front of the hose. But the problem isn't the hose. The problem is never what God is wanting to show you. The problem is, is rocks that we have made friends with, the rocks that we assume are part of the water, rocks that we or positive, deserve, belong in that picture. Rocks that we will not drag to the light and have exposed. But he will never appear, he cannot, he cannot appear next to our ideas. He appears instead of our ideas. And it never ever fits with what we've, what, what we've thought. It always replaces what we've thought. What I'm trying to say is that in order to be filled up with him, in order to be filled, in order that he might fill all things in your soul, we have to constantly be presenting to him the rocks that take up room where he longs to reside. And God knows what we can bear. Again, I don't mean what you can handle or what you can understand. I mean he knows the difference between spiritual curiosity and a heart that desires to bear his fullness. He always shows us what we can bear. The way that God fills us, as Paul mentions here in Ephesians 4, is by causing our soul to bear in itself his living word. He reveals his son in us. Galatians 1.16. He reveals his son in us, and that son takes his rightful place in the territory of our soul. 
And in that way, his kingdom has increased. In that way, I mean, this just goes right back to the type and shadow of David filling up that land with the seed of Abraham. In that, in that way, Israel's borders are enlarged. The boundaries of Israel are enlarged when the king puts to death what was formerly there. Can you see that in David? Can you see why God got mad at Saul for not fulfilling that type and shadow? The, the, the boundaries of Israel expand in your soul as the judgment of God puts away the wrong man and exalts the son that he saw from the beginning. One city at a time, filling up his land. Amen. We'll stop there. Let's just pray and we'll...